go to Israel, you go to South Korea, you, you go to the US, innovation is linked to public procurement. You guys have DARPA in the US, in South Korea and Israel, they, they have so much money put into uh, innovative public procurement. That's how they nurture uh, the, their local startup ecosystems. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movements, where every week we bring conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all over the world. My name is Andrew Berkowitz, and I am joined today by Nicholas Ryan, who is the CEO of Francais Digital, the largest startup lobbying organization in Europe, with 1,500 startups and 100 VCs as its members. And in June of this year, Nicholas was named the new president of the European Startup Network, He's here today to, to, to discuss their latest call for a Buy European Tech Act and the concept of digital sovereignty and what that means for the European region. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hey, good evening or, or maybe good morning. So Nicholas, why don't we just start off with talking a little bit about Francais Digital. Like, wh- What is it? Why did it get started? And how did you get into this space of policy and, and startup lobbying? That was a very long time ago, 2012, which is a history. If you look at the, the French startup scene back in 2012, not a lot of things were going on. The amount of VC raised back then was only a couple of million euros, which was extremely low. We had only a very few exits. We had a, a very interesting engineering culture a great uh, entrepreneurial mindset. But for some reason, we couldn't match this engineering culture with this entrepreneurial mindset. And we had very few startups. Things happened to change with a generation of, uh, of French people coming back from the Silicon Valley and some of them graduating from, from top uh, American universities. And that's where they, they got the, you know, the the sense that uh, American startups were doing something great and that they could uh, do something even better in France. Back in 2012, a couple of entrepreneurs and VCs uh, found out that there wasn't a startup-friendly policy framework in France because, in fact, politicians and public servants weren't aware of the startup scene, which was very small back then. So. France Digital was created to educate these policymakers and to make them understand that you can't just address the digital revolution with the US big tech on one side and the European legacy players on the other side. Uh, you have also to hear the, the startups uh, in, in this debate. So that's, that's how we got, we, we got things started. Uh, we got things started very nastily, uh, nastily actually. That, that was a very nasty fight uh, in the beginning because um, the government couldn't understand what was going on and, and they tried to slap uh, a couple of taxes and, and yeah, very, very nasty uh, fiscal constraints on the native startup ecosystem. So we had to, to fight back. And that's, that's how we created this lobby, France Digital, which has grown a lot. I mean, we, back in 2012, we had a one, 100 startups, basically. Yeah, I would say 10 VCs. Now we have 1,800 startups uh, as members. And we also have like 100 VC, which is pretty much all the VCs operating in, in, in France. By U.S. standards, this is quite small, but by European standards, this this is huge. 
it's the largest uh, startup organization in Europe. That's the main reason why I, I became uh, president of uh, the, the European Startup Network, which is the, the, the lobby group uh, in Brussels that uh, advocates for European startups. Got it. And I mean, it seems like, like you said, Europe and particularly France, while you guys did have kind of a slow start to really supporting the digital and, and startup ecosystem locally, you guys have done a really good job lately, especially when you look at the initiatives and the actual capital that's available to support scale-ups. Europe faces the problem that Africa, the Middle East, Latin America faces, which is just fragmented market sizes, fragmented cultures across the different markets. But I think Europe is in a unique advantage compared to those regions because the EU is a much more formalized organization that can direct policy versus, you know, a lot of the initiatives uh, like the Africa Union or the Arab League. It's not as well coordinated and kind of mature as, as you have in the EU. Um, I want to read this quote, and then we can get into this by European Tech Act. While public procurement makes up for about 15% of European GDP, non-European players make up to 75% of European public procurement, which is, I mean, like, I don't understand why it would be such a big gap and why they wouldn't look to more local players when it comes to actually fulfilling these public procurement contracts. So, I mean, can you explain to me why this is even a question? Like, what stakeholders are at play that even make this a muddled issue to begin with? First of all, let's let's say that there is a very strong tech culture in Europe. You can't really compare what's happening in Europe with what's happening on other continents because there has been a long-standing tradition, a long-standing culture of scientific excellence uh, on the European continent. If you look at the, the Shanghai rankings uh, for, for top universities, the, the top math university in the world is, is a French university. It's not an American university. Basically, the European startup scene didn't grow out of uh, Greenfield. There was a very interesting background of uh, engineering excellence and a great scientific culture. So w once I've said this, maybe that's where uh, the problem was. We had magnificent legacy players. Let's think about Nokia. Let, let's think about Ericsson. Let, let, let's think about Deutsche Telekom or, or Capgemini here in, in France. I mean, they, these guys, uh, they, they, they know how to produce technology. The only thing that really, really Europe lacked was startups. The, the way uh, the, the tech, tech markets were uh, constructed, it was all about legacy players, big tech. And then I wouldn't say big tech like, like you guys have big tech in America. I would say mid-tech. We had mid-tech legacy players. We didn't have a lot of, of startups. So... Um, Public procurement was made for these mid-tech legacy players. And, and still today, public procurement is aimed at, at these mid-tech legacy players. That's, that's a, a structural fact. The second point, which is quite, quite interesting, is that all over the world, I mean, you, you go to Israel, you go to South Korea, you, you go to the US, innovation is linked to public procurement. You guys have uh, DARPA uh, in the US. In South Korea and Israel, they, they have so much money uh, put into uh, innovative public procurement. And that's, that's how they nurture uh, the, their local startup ecosystems. 
I think that was in 2018, I, I traveled to Tel Aviv, Israel, and I met with uh, one of, of the top VC guys in, in Tel Aviv, one of the guys who, who made uh, Mobileye. And this guy, who has a very strong track record, he, he told me this. He told me that, you know, American people are crazy. They're crazy because, because they think that a startup is created with three people in a garage. And us, Israeli people, we know that a startup is created by three people in a garage at the Ministry of Defense. And I found that extremely interesting with this joke, because that was obviously a joke. He was making such a, a clear link between a public procurement and, and defense public procurement and the startup community. In Europe, we don't have this link between the defense community and the, the innovation ecosystem. We don't have this connection between public procurement and between between startups. For many reasons, uh, I, I gave a few already, but also you have a regulatory framework that has to change. In Europe, we have very, very, very strong competition laws, uh, very, very strong antitrust, antitrust uh, laws. For instance, if a European government decides to favor startups over legacy players, in public procurement, if a government decides to favor, uh, let's say, French tech companies over U.S. tech companies, the European Commission is going to come up and say, hey, that's unfair. I'm going to, to slash a, a fee because you're clearly um, not uh, abiding by the, um, the antitrust regulatory framework. It's an unfair advantage. This is clearly so 1980. In a globalized world, you, you cannot expect your innovation ecosystem to thrive without public procurement. When you see, you know, Israel and South Korea and China obviously doing exactly the same thing, and Europe is the only continent on Earth where we don't have a by European Technology Act. The, the Americans uh, have regulations and and laws that favor American startups over foreign startups. Uh, Israel and, and South Korea and China have exactly the same. And that's pretty much what we fight, we're fighting for at, uh, at the European Startup Network. We are pushing and nudging the, the European regulators so that they finally wake up and, and get this uh, by European Technology Act through Parliament. That's super interesting. So would you say that the individual federal governments in each country there's always been this desire for public procurement to be with local companies and then the friction comes at the EU level? It's totally the, the main point of friction here. I mean, Estonia or France or Italy, any government might want to push a regulatory framework that is favorable to startups or that is favorable to European tech, but they won't be able to do it because of the pan-European regulatory framework. If they try to push a, a pro-startup uh, measure, Brussels, uh, the European Commission, will tell them that it's, uh, it's against the, the so-called treaties. And obviously, this question was clearly not in the debate 10 years ago when we didn't have startups to favor. Now we have great startups, we have great innovation ecosystems, and I believe that it's time to 
help them with with some public procurement. In your press release, you talk about this concept of digital sovereignty. And so, I mean, do you, you feel like now that, and, and this wasn't really the case a decade ago, when you look at a lot of the big tech companies in the world, like now there's this geopolitical association with companies. When you look at Google, Facebook, Huawei, like before, maybe I would say just a few years ago, like a lot of these brands had very positive notions all around the world. And now that there's just over the past couple of years, a lot of friction when it comes to GDPR compliance and a lot of the data practices. So when did the geopolitics of these companies first start to really appear as an as a issue? And how does that affect this concept of digital sovereignty in, in the EU and how important well, that becomes? Um, there was once a, a great philosopher, Peter Parker, who said, with great power comes great responsibilities. Uh, <laughs> I believe you guys produce amazing philosophers <laughs> with amazing quotes. Amazing superhero movies as well. <laughs> yeah. Jokes aside, um, obviously, the big tech companies have gathered so, so much power in their hands that it's uh, legitimate for citizens around the world to uh, think about checks and balance. I think it's totally legitimate. I mean... We had the, exactly the same debate about big pharma and big oil and big banks uh, during the last financial crisis. So wh- why not big tech? It's a totally legitimate debate. But it shouldn't be a sour debate. I wouldn't like people to turn against the big tech. I mean, the, the, the big tech are part of our lives. They're, they're, they are providing uh, great products and great services. A lot of people are buying it and, and, and they're happy with it. So um, there, there is a, a fine line to, to, to walk here. It's, it's a legitimate debate too, because that, that reminds me, and, and I'm going to put uh, some, some history into this debate. It reminds me of the situation of the Eastern Indies company. Back in the 18th century, there was this big merchant company that was trading with uh, British colonies, and they were making so much money that they became basically a, a state within the state. And they had their own army, their own coins, their own... their own. Basically, they, they, they were a state. If you look at some of the big tech, they're actually pretty much like states or governments. I mean, the, the tax administrations of uh, countries like Greece prefer to use Google Maps to identify fraud and, and illicit uh, construction activities rather than their own registries. Facebook is on the verge of uh, having its own coins. Uh, Libra is, uh, is, is basically coins. Facebook has more pictures of you than any intelligent service of any government on the planet. So... Some big tech companies ha- have uh, gained much power and it's totally legitimate for the public to think about checks and balance. Mm. And when you think, I mean, you're 100% right. Like a lot of these big tech companies, like they have much more resources than almost every single government in the world. And it was kind of honey potted in. Like it was, you know, no one really thought about the importance of data privacy until, you know, maybe five, six years ago. I mean, you know, when I was younger, Facebook and MySpace was just like a thing where 
you connect with friends and you put all of your information out there. And it wasn't really, I mean, until it was kind of too late till we started to understand the importance of like, who is getting access to this data? Who's being resold the data that we're putting into these big machines? And what is the intention of the people behind them? I mean, now that they're at scale globally, it's a conversation of, does this need to be decentralized? And I think that's actually the next big wave of Web 3.0. We're going to see a lot of these services. It may not specifically be Facebook and Google and Apple, but I think a lot of centralized platforms are going to be decentralized. As we have gotten slowly over time, very callous towards hacking and data breaches, like it's it happens all the time now. We don't really, you know, it's, it's headlines for a day or two, but then it just kind of fades away into nothing. That is going to be, I think, the next trend. And in that world, I see definitely some fr- some added friction between governments that are just starting to get an understanding of like, how do we work with these platforms? How do we regulate these platforms to, uh, you know, how do we how do we even respond to the decentralization of the internet, decentralization of money? So I think that's actually the next thing that's coming on the horizon, and that brings up an interesting point in the topic of public procurement because i mean you're going to want the majority of the value being created on those decentralized platforms to be within your municipality so that you can actually try to capture some of that value in the form of taxes or whatever that may be how do you think that this lack of tech m&a culture specifically amongst like european corporations and european mid-sized tech companies how does that culture get changed and provide some more options for some startups in the region to actually have uh, a path to liquidity and a path to some sort of exit. Well, uh, you're putting a, a lot of very relevant material on the table. First, maybe coming back to how governments should handle their relationship with um, with the big tech. I don't see that as a fight. I see that as a necessary cooperation. Like, for instance, I was uh, having a conversation with Brad Smith uh, from, from Microsoft. And the guy is the CEO of Microsoft. And he's pushing very, very hard for what he calls a cyberspace Geneva Convention. So that, what, what, what would that mean? A cyberspace Geneva Convention would basically mean that uh, state actors and, and governments have no right to um, conduct a cyber attack on civilian on civilians. That's an extremely interesting point. We have here a private company or a listed company that is lobbying for an international treaty at the UN, and a peace treaty. That's fascinating. I mean, it's it's very, very far from Microsoft business model, but that's obviously in line with their own interests to have a, a safer cyberspace. They are not fools. <laughs> but I'm giving this example because that's a very concrete example of a matter that could bring together governments and big tech together to push for the common good. So I definitely think that we, we shouldn't see... Uh, uh, the relationship between European governments and U.S. big techs as a fight. 
this doesn't have to be a fight. This can also be a very interesting and fruitful cooperation. So coming back to, to, to M&A, Microsoft's value on, on the stock exchange, on, on I think it's NASDAQ, is actually exceeding the value of the top 20 French listed companies. So it's it's clearly not a fair fight. Uh, Microsoft can buy up uh, any French tech company, whereas our local legacy players do not necessarily have the firepower to buy a French tech company. So that, that's the very first point. And when, when you look at the, the figures, there is a massive divide. The American large corporations invest six times more in AI startups than their European counterparts. That's, that's massive. That's massive. And this investment gap over time will clearly, clearly impact the quality of our AI ecosystems. So that's the main reason why uh, we, we have so many U.S. companies buying up very interesting French startups or European startups because they have the financial leverage uh, to do so. But you're right to mention that there is also a cultural thing. The Europeans still think that we might produce one day some European version of Google or Facebook. I don't believe so. I, I don't think we, we the Europeans will be producing any Google or European version of Facebook anytime soon. But we still have an interesting thing to play. Basically, it's very hard to create an international digital champion, but you can digitize an existing corporate champion. So, for instance, uh, I see no reason why... Uh, LVMH in, in luxury or Sanofi in pharma uh, cannot digitize uh, as a company and, and become a very, very interesting uh, player on the international tech scene. That's something that European CEOs and especially European CFOs should, should think about. And I do think increasing the local public procurement has a part to play in that because at the end of the day, what Europe needs at this current stage is just more turnover, more liquidity in the ecosystem, more startups that are able to exit, whether it's a acquisition by a local corporate, IPO on maybe the London Stock Exchange or whatever that may be. But if you have more public money going into startups, that makes them much more attractive to corporates to actually buy. Because a lot of the procurement winners or they're going to win not because of their size but because they have a particular application of artificial intelligence or some sort of technology that's unique enough to win that contract and then that startup becomes much more attractive for a corporate because now they have the ability to not only integrate that technology into what they do but now they have a clear path to these large government contracts that they're basically acquiring you know somewhat of a moat that wasn't there before if you don't have the public procurement process locally. So I think both the tech M&A locally and the public procurement locally can play off each other. But Nicholas, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that you wanted to cover, anything we should touch on today that we, that we haven't talked about? We are facing an interesting time because it's election time in, in your country. 
I do believe that the, the past years I have been uh, horrific for our both the American and the and the European tech ecosystems. Obviously, we, we've been able to conduct business because we we don't need politicians to to conduct business. But I'm thinking about you know the the very aggressive pressures that the U.S. administration administration puts on our companies through the, the Cloud Act and the 5G uh, restrictions and much um, retaliation after we we passed uh, taxations on on digital activities. I think each side needs to calm down <laughs> a little bit, and I hope that we will get the opportunity in in the in the coming four years to 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 work together in a friendlier way because we need that transatlantic relation to be extremely sound uh extremely sound we have common challenges that we should address together i'm thinking for instance about uh, net neutrality i'm thinking about the, the impact of digital activities on the environment these global challenges uh, should be addressed jointly and everyone should should have a, a civilized uh, way of, of approaching these matters. I agree. And that, I mean, your, your point also brings up the question of like, what do we do in a world where the people want to connect and the people want a positive way forward and our politicians don't necessarily represent us anymore? I can speak right now for the American people that, you know, we love you guys. And, you know, we have nothing but positive sentiment towards towards Europeans. So. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure it's 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 likewise in the other direction. So, uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, let, let's make America great again. <laughs> bye bye, guys. <laughs>